Hey guys, I hope studying's going well or as well as it could be for being in this situation and hopefully we'll all pass the core exam in February quickly. The, we'll talk, start talking about the mass effect caused onto the cord from different spinal masses. We have three locations where masses can occur and will have mass effect on the cord. We have extradural location, we have intradural but extramedullary, and we have intradural and intramedullary masses. An example of an extradural mass that causes mass effect on the cord or the nerves is disc herniation. An intradural mass that is extramedullary would be an example for a meningioma or schwannoma. And finally, an intradural or intramedullary mass would include astrocytoma. Again, a mass that causes mass effect on the spine can either be extradural intradural but extramedullary and intradular intramedullary. Example for each extradular dural is disc herniation, intradular but extramedullary is meningioma or schwannoma, and finally intradural and intramedullary masses would be astrocytoma or any uh, tumor or cancer of the uh, nervous system itself. What are the quadriceps muscles? These are the vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and intermedialis, and the rectus femoris. Obviously, these muscles result in the flexion of the thigh. Again, the quadriceps muscles are the vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and intermedialis, and rectus femoris muscle. Gardner syndrome includes which tumors? Includes dysmoid soft tissue tumor. It also includes osteomas, particularly of the sphenoid bone, and numerous GI polyps. Again, Gardner syndrome is a group of three tumors, so numerous osteomas, particularly of the sphenoid uh, polyps, GI polyps, and soft tissue desmoid tumors. Let's repeat that one more time. Gardner syndrome is three tumors, desmoid tumors, soft tissue desmoids, osteomas, typically of the sphenoid bone, and intestinal or GI polyps. X-ray features of malignant or aggressive bone process include wide zone of transition and periosteal reaction. We have a narrow zone of transition that's usually indicating a benign process. Stomach, Stomach twisting along the long axis, so along the axis connecting the cardia and pylorus. This is termed organoaxial volvulus. It is the most common type and associated with diaphragmatic defect. This can have vascular compromise. Now, this is in contradistinction of mesenteroaxial volvulus. As you can imagine, the mesenteroaxial volvulus is the opposite of that, so the stomach would twist on its short axis. So the stomach, if you imagine the stomach as a book, and you close the book along the middle or midline of the stomach. Again, organoaxial volvulus is a volvulus along the long axis of the stomach. It is the more common type, and it is associated with diaphragmatic defect, can present with obstruction, as well as vascular compromise. You're shown a abdomen pelvis CT scan sliced at the liver with calcifications in the liver as well as the peritoneum, and you're asked to give a differential for calcifications in the liver. The differential is mucin-producing carcinoma. This can be from stomach, colon, or ovary. Again, mucin-producing tumor, stomach, colon, or ovary.
Atlanto-occipital assimilation is the fusion of the atlas or C1 superior aspect with the occipital condyles. Presentation of diffuse idiopathic pulmonary neuroendocrine hyperplasia or DEPNEC. So this is an uncommon uh, disorder with multiple hyperdense foci of neuroendocrine or carcinoid-like tumors and typically measure less than 5 millimeter. The presentation for the patient is with asthma-like symptoms or bronchitis obliterans in a 50 or so year old female. So 50 or so year old female and chest CT scan will show multiple foci of hyperdense lesions and presentation of shortness of breath, asthma, or bronchitis obliteran. This can be consistent with diffuse idiopathic pulmonary neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia, which is multiple foci of carcinoid droplets or carcinoid uh, foci. Extension of pancreatic tumor that does not limit resection. Limited extension into the duodenum distal stomach or common bile duct and even limited venous extension, the pancreatic tumor may still be considered resectable. E-wing sarcoma, this is a diaphyseal or metadiaphyseal lesion of long bones, patient typically in their first or second decade, and this is an aggressive permeative osteous lesion that causes destruction with periosteal reaction, often laminated or onion skin appearance. Again, this is an aggressive osseous lesion in kids in their first or second decade in the diaphysis or metadiaphysis. Troubleshooting pulmonary perfusion scan. So for pulmonary perfusion scan, part of the VQ scan, we use technetium binding to MAA. MAA is macroaggregated albumin, which is a large particle size. We have technetium 99, which is small, binding to a large particle. The way it works is the macroaggregated albumin will get stuck in the pulmonary capillary, and it will give us the perfusion imaging of the lung. If we have two options, either the TEC MAA did not bind to the macroaggregated albumin, or that the combination of the TEC plus MAA entered into the systemic circuit. If the technetium by itself, meaning free technetium or free pertechnitate, is in the systemic circuit, it will go where typically technetium would go. It'll go into the thyroid, stomach, liver, and salivary glands. And that's where we see uptake. Now, if we, on a profusion scan, we see uptake in the brain and kidneys, that means that there's a right-to-left shunt because the technetium, while it is bounded to MAA, it did not get stuck in the pulmonary circuit. There was a way where it passed either a cardiac right-to-left shunt or a pulmonary, an AVM, or etc., where it allowed the tech MAA to bypass the circuit and enters the systemic circuit. Now, because of its large size, this will get stuck in either the brain or the kidneys. Again, when troubleshooting a perfusion scan done with tech MAA, we have two options for systemic technetium. One, that it is a free pertechnitate, meaning the technetium did not bind to the macroaggregated albumin, and at that point we'll get a technetium scan, which will have uptaken the thyroid, salivary gland, stomach, and liver. Or if we have a right-to-left shunt where the blood 
bypasses the pulmonary circuit, either through the heart or a vascular malformation in the lung. And at that point, we'll see TEC-MAA being trapped in the brain and the kidney. Morale-level lesion. Morale-level lesion is an degloving injury at the subcutaneous fat fascia interface. The typical imaging appearance is small nodules collect of similar signal intensity as the subcutaneous fat, and it would follow the fat signal on all sequences. Again, it's a degloving injury at the fat fascia interface, and will have fat nodules or fat lobules interspersed, and those fat nodules would follow fat signal on all sequen on all sequences. Again, small nodules, fat nodules uh, that were sheared into the uh, subcutaneous uh, fat fascia interface and they follow all the fat signal. Neuroblastoma. This is a primitive neural crest malignancy arising from the sympathetic chain and most commonly arising at the adrenal gland. On imaging, we see a suprarenal mass with calcifications. May or may not see calcifications, but commonly see calcifications. Now, neuroblastoma on imaging tend to encase the vessels. This is important to distinguish it from Wilms tumor, which is a renal malignancy, not an adrenal malignancy. In Wilms tumor, it invades the vessels. Again, neuroblastoma encases the vessels. The way we remember it, that the nerve always run along the vessel. So neuroblastoma would encase the vessels while Wilms tumor would invade into the vessel. For imaging, we see lytic bone lesions for metastatic lesions, and we can, on neuro, we'll see it on I-123 MIBG scintigraphy. So we'll see it on nuclear medicine, I-123 MIBG scintigraphy, and on x-ray, we can see lytic bone lesions, especially in a child. Common differential for speculated margin on mammogram, either radial scar, post-op scar, breast cancer. Again, speculated margin can be a radial scar, post-op scar, or breast cancer. Differential for pulsatile portal vein on ultrasound. Now, hepatic vein can have some pulsatility to it because it's directly communicating with the right atrium. Now, when we see pulsatility in the portal vein, that means two things. One, it's a problem backtracking from the hepatic vein into the portal vein, meaning a severe cardiac process such as right heart failure or tricuspid regurgitation, which really leads to heart failure. Now, cirrhosis is a different process. Cirrhosis causes fibrosis, increased in portal uh, blood pressure, leading to portal hypertension. And that's when we also see pulsatile portal vein. Finally, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, which causes arteriovenous fistula. Again, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasias, cirrhosis, or right heart pathology causes pulsatile portal vein. Lytic bone metastasis. Obviously, we just talked about uh, neuroblastoma. But for adults, we'll see renal cell cancer is lytic, thyroid cancer is lytic, lung cancer may be lytic, may be, may be sclerotic, same thing with breast, and finally, multiple myeloma. I think the one uh, podcast that I liked a lot is Songs for FRCR, and the mnemonic uh, the lady used is LTK, lytic. So lung, thyroid, renal cancer, 
and multiple myeloma. Extracranial neoplasms associated with neurofibromatosis type 2, uh, sorry, type 1. So again, extracranial neoplasm associated with neurofibromatosis type 1. We have Wellens tumor, angiomyolipoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, leiomyosarcoma, and intracranial aneurysm. That's not really a tumor, but, you know, we typically see tumors with NF1 in the brain, but it's also associated with intracranial aneurysms. Now, neurofibromatosis is tumors all over the body, million types of tumor, but these are, you know, if at least you have those in the back of your head or at least listen to them once and know that their particular association with these tumors might be helpful for a test. Again, neurofibromatosis type 1 is associated with Wells, Wells tumor, angiomyolipoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, and leiomyosarcoma. MRI imaging or sequences that maximizes blooming or susceptibility artifact. We have SWI, which stands for Susceptibility Weighted Imaging, Gradient Echo Sequences, and Low B-Value Diffusion Weighted Imaging. All of these sequences maximize the blooming or susceptibility artifact. Why is this important? If you want to evaluate if there is a low-volume bleed or a small bleed in the brain, you can look for uh, any of these sequences that would enhance uh, this artifact. Additionally, if you're looking for a metallic or surgical clip, uh, that would cause blooming artifact. It's better to see these uh, to see the blooming artifact on these sequences. And finally, if we're looking for air, we could see it potentially in one of these sequences, particularly the gradient echo sequence. We'll see the blooming artifact associated with the air. This is not really a test question, but it's good to have have, have for perspective if you're doing procedures. The typical biopsy size for the chest, so it's a 20-gauge biopsy. We use a 19-gauge introducer, and we put a 20-gauge uh, biopsy device. FNA for perspective is a 22-gauge uh, for just sampling tissue for the chest. And a small chest tube size, around 12 French. Differential for microcolon. Well, microcolon is a colon less than one centimeter. Different pathologies, but commonly when the colon is not used, we'll have microcolon. For example, meconium ileus, we will, will cause microcolon because uh, nothing is passing into the colon because of the ileus or meconium obstructing the ileum. Ileal or colonic atresia will cause microcolon, obviously vascular injury, but the idea is... Uh, what if we have jejunal atresia, we won't get microcolon because dead cells that form the succus entericus from the ileum would go through the colon and allow for the colon to mature. Again, ileal or colonic atresia will give you microcolon. Total colonic Hirschsprung, rare, but will give you microcolon. And finally, megacystic microcolon hypoperistaltic syndrome. Differential for microcolon, meconium ileus, ileal or colonic atresia, total colonic Hirschsprung, and megacystic microcolon hypoperostasis syndrome. Subtype of hepatic adenoma with malignant potential, that is the beta-catenin mutated hepatic adenoma. Again, beta-catenin mutated hepatic adenoma has a potential for malignant uh, transformation. What is given a BIRAD? Three on mammogram. Obviously, this is never on a screening mammogram. It's either a baseline or diagnostic uh, mammogram. Baseline diagnostic mammogram, not a screening mammogram. 
round or oval circumscribed mass, and here we're referring to a fibroadenoma, a grouped round calcification and focal asymmetry. So round or oval circumscribed mass, group or round calcification, and focal asymmetry. Those three, if you see them on a diagnostic exam, not a screening mammogram, they're given by RAD3. On a screening exam, they're given by RAD0, and diagnostic studies would be performed at that time. Presentation of Rasmussen encephalitis. This is typically a disease of children 68 years old, presents with focal motor seizures, followed by progressive loss of ipsilateral motor function and cognitive decline with cerebral atrophy of the involved uh, hemisphere. Again, Rasmussen encephalitis, children 6 to 8 years old, focal motor seizures with progressive loss of motor function and cognitive decline, and on imaging we'll have cerebral atrophy of the involved hemisphere. This is consistent with Rasmussen encephalitis. In cardiac MRI, what is the role of the following sequences? First pass perfusion. First pass perfusion is used to detect the perinfarct ischemia. Velocity encoded phase contrast imaging. This is used to determine the regurgitant volume and cardiac output. Again, velocity encoded phase contrast imaging used to determine regurgitant volume and fraction of cardiac output. Finally, role of delayed enhancement infarct evaluation, diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, quantification of myocardial scarring, and assessment of myocardial viability. So you can see delayed enhancement has the most prognostic values and utilities, helps in infarction evaluation, diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, quantification of myocardial scarring, and assessment of myocardial viability. Let's go over them one more time. We'll probably go over them a couple of times in the next coming days. One, first pass perfusion used to detect perinfarct ischemia. Velocity encoded phased contrast imaging is used to determine regurgitant volume and fraction of cardiac output. Delayed enhancement or LGE is used for infarction evaluation, diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, quantification of myocardial scarring, and assessment of myocardial viability. What does STIR imaging stand for? stands for short T1 inversion recovery imaging. So STIR, short T inversion recovery imaging, typically used to null the signal from fat, and it is good for bone edema as you null the bone uh, fat signal. Again, it nulls the signal in fat, and it is good for bone edema. STIR is good for bone edema, especially if you're looking for fracture on spinal MRI acute fracture. Differential formulary nodules in the lung. We have disseminated TB, disseminated fungal infection, and disseminated hematogenous metastasis or infection. Again, Disseminated TB, fungal infection, or metastasis present with miliary nodules. Chondroplastoma imaging presentation. This is an eccentric lucent lesion with sclerotic limb, sclerotic limb on the epiphysis of skeletally immature or skeletally mature, meaning young, barely maturing typically the knee or proximal hemorrhoids. Treatment for chondroblastoma is keratage 
and MRI would display intermediate T2 signal. Again, chondroblastoma, eccentric lucent lesion with thin sclerotic rim in the epiphysis of skeletally immature. Most common location is the knee or humerus. And treatment is curatage. What is the TTTG interval? Tibial tuberosity, trochlear groove distance. This would quantify patellar instability or patellar maltracking. And distance of the TTTG interval greater than 20 millimeter is considered abnormal. Again, TTTG interval is tibial tuberosity to trochlear groove distance, quantifying patellar instability and patellar maltracking. And distance greater than 20 millimeter is considered abnormal.